Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Episode 5, Throne Projection. In this episode, I'm going to be looking at um, chapter 5 of Division 1 of Being and Time. And um, so what we've seen so far in chapter three was an analysis of being in the world, chapter four, an analysis of being with others. And uh, those things are both important, but chapter five gives us a kind of conceptual infrastructure or undergirding to everything that we've seen so far. It's a really, long and not complicated. There's a lot of moving parts in this chapter. And so I want to try and get the the structure of it clear in this episode and uh, continue with it into the the next episode on inauthentic life, where we're also going to talk about language. But once we've got a grasp on the concepts laid out in chapter five, then we're already prepared or always already as Heideggerians would say, always already prepared for the definition of the being of Dasein as care, which is really the whole uh, thrust of division one of being and time. The being of Dasein is care. But what does that really mean? So what we have to do is to see a whole run of argument, which really begins in chapter five, paragraph 28, through to chapter six, paragraph 42, to see that run of arguments as a single arc. And, um, and then after we've looked at that single arc, in episode, uh, let's see, episode seven, we'll look at the, the meaning of the being of Dasein as care, really what that means. And then in episode uh, eight, we will look at the paragraphs 43 and 44, which are really two kind of mini essays at the end of division one on the question of reality and the question of truth. But we're moving on now into the kind of the core of what Heidegger's up to in in this book. And uh, I wanna make that as clear as I possibly can. So let's make a start with the beginning of chapter five, which is um, paragraph 28. And the question here, again, and it sounds kind of stupidly obvious when it's put in you know, the way Heidegger describes it himself, but Heidegger's question in chapter five is what is the being of the there for Dasein? Dasein is being there. Uh, what is the being of the there? What does it really mean to be there? That's the kind of of obviousness of the question that Heidegger's asking. Now, we know a number of things already. We know that the there of Dasein's place, Dasein's, where Dasein is, is Dasein is being in the world. So Dasein is in the world, and that world is a world that absorbs Dasein, which benumbs Dasein, a world with which Dasein is fascinated. And we also know from uh, paragraph 12 earlier that the in of Dasein's 
being in the world is not the in of water in a glass or a piece of cheese in a fridge or a hamster in its cage. It's not the inness of a present-at-hand thing inside another thing. So the way we are in the world is not like that. So we've got some, uh, some of this argument has been prepared. But what you feel in this chapter at the beginning of it is the difficulty of what Heidegger wants to say and also the obviousness of what Heidegger wants to say. So for example, on page 170, he says, um, uh, he says, this is a little quotation, being in, topic of the chapter, being in is an essential kind of being of this entity itself, Dasein. But then he says, it would be not correct to talk about this, uh, the being of this entity as a subject in a world of objects. We know that that's the wrong approach. We've got rid of that. He, he said, then goes on to say, it would be more accurate to describe Dasein, the human being, as the being of the between, he says in quotation marks, the being of the between. And he says, well, that's not right either, because to say that Dasein is, the there of Dasein is between selves or human things and world-like things is to assume that there's a between in the first place, that there's a difference between these two sets of entities. And Heidegger doesn't want to begin from that premise. He wants to begin from the idea of the unity of Dasein as being in the world. And then still on this page 170, he makes a very interesting remark. He says, what is decisive for ontology is to prevent the splitting of the phenomenon. To prevent the splitting of the phenomenon. So even to say that Dasein is the being of the between, between selves and things, presupposes the existence of two types of things and a between between them. And Heidegger wants to avoid that, to avoid that splitting. He wants to think about Dasein as being in the world as a unity and to hang on to that unity. And then as he's kind of, you know, clearing his throat, clearing the ground in this chapter, you can see him kind of wrestling with this thought. He says that Dasein is itself, it's there, right? Dasein is there being, its being is there. And this there has always been disclosed. He drops this term into the beginning of the chapter, disclosure, which is going to become a really important term in Heidegger's vocabulary because it's going to define the nature of truth, uh, ultimately, for Heidegger. But here he just drops it in. He says that we are there and that there is disclosed to us, kind of always already. And um, I'm just going to quote a tiny bit more. This is from 171 of Macquarie, Macquarie and Robinson. Uh, just a few lines. He says, when we talk of the natural light in man, the lumen naturale, he says, the natural light of reason, it's the way it's normally configured in, say, Descartes. And he's going to take that idea of natural light and shift it. But to go back to the text, when we talk in a figurative way of the natural light in man, 
we have in mind nothing other than the existential ontological structure of this entity, that it is in such a way as to be its there. It is in such a way as to be its there. To say that it is illuminated, erleuchtet, says in German, means that as being in the world, it is cleared, gelichtet, in itself, not through any other entity, but in such a way that it is itself the clearing. It is itself the clearing. So Dasein is disclosed, is, is lit up, is cleared, and it is itself the clearing. That's the thought. Only for an entity, he says, which is existentially cleared in this way, does that which is present at hand become accessible along with it. If it lacks, it's there. It is not factically the entity which is essentially Dasein. Indeed, it is not this entity at all. Dasein is its disclosedness. Dasein is its disclosedness. And this disclosedness that we are is described in these light metaphors. Um, Dasein is lighting, is clearing. And furthermore, Dasein, us, we, are not cleared or disclosed through any other entity. We're not cleared or revealed or we don't come into the truth through a relationship to God or to nature or to reason or any conception of being. Whether being is a unity, let's say as it was for Plato and the Neoplatonics, or being as a kind of multiplicity, as it is in figures, say, like Deleuze and Badiou. All of that is just metaphysical talk. We are the kind of beings who are cleared through ourselves. We are ourselves the clearing. We are disclosedness. That's the thought. And um, we have to begin from that, that thought. So the question in this chapter is, you know, what is the, the in of Dasein's being in? What is the there of Dasein's being there? Well, that in and that there are our disclosedness in the clearing, a clearing which we ourselves are. It doesn't come through any external agency. And the structure of this chapter, like many of the chapters in Being in Time, is a twofold structure. There's part A and part B. In part A, he advances the three key existential concepts in chapter five. Those concepts are state of mind, understanding, and language or discourse, and we'll come to those in a, a few minutes. These are the three existentials. And then in part B of the, uh, the chapter, if Dasein is disclosure, then uh, Dasein is also covered over. Dasein, Dasein is covered up insofar as that it exists in average, everyday inauthenticity. And so the second part of the chapter, which we'll get to next week, 
is described under the concept of falling, das Verfallen. And there are three concepts which mirror the three concepts of state of mind, understanding and language. The three existential concepts are mirrored in three, as it were, fallen concepts for inauthentic concepts, idle talk, curiosity and ambiguity. And we'll come to those next time. The point that I'm trying to make here is that the chapter itself, chapter five, is a movement between A and B, between existential uh, concepts and factical concepts, between things being disclosed and closed over. So Dasein is disclosure, is itself the lighting, the clearing, but it's a clearing that can be covered up in average everyday life. And what Heidegger is trying to describe in this chapter is the movement, the kinesis. The word he uses in German is Bewegung, uh, the, the movement of disclosure and covering up, or unconcealment and concealment, that describes the being of Dasein and, and this is the good bit, which we'll come back to um, when we get to the concept of truth. This is the concept of truth for Heidegger. Truth is also a movement, uh, a, a rhythmical movement between disclosure or unconcealment and covering over and concealment. And why I'm emphasizing this is that learning to read Heidegger and think with Heidegger is about learning the rhythm of Heidegger's thinking, which is the rhythm of our becoming, the rhythm of our existence. The rhythm of our existence is a motion between disclosure and closure, existence and facticity. As we'll see in a moment, projection and thrownness, authenticity and inauthenticity. The point of reading Heidegger is to learn that rhythm of thinking our openness. What I've emphasized in these, in these um, episodes, our openness as a movement, as a rhythm, a rhythm of disclosure and things being closed off. And to think of it rhythmically is also to, also to think of it musically. There is a kind of music to being in time. Uh, a rhythm of uh, disclosure and closure. And in many ways, I think that what Heidegger is driving at in this, um, in this book could also be thought of in terms of our experience of music. The problem that uh, Heidegger faces is that that experience of music is an experience of rhythm and motion and cadence and counterpoint is frozen in the static language of philosophy. So how does that frozen language of philosophy um, get loosened up, become rhythmical? That's really what he's trying to do in this chapter. And it's, uh, it's a hard thing to do. Okay, so that's kind of the um, clearing the ground uh, to the chapter. Let me now run through the key, the key claim in this, uh, in this chapter, 
which is the idea of thrown projection and try and lay out the, uh, if you like, the concept clusters that uh, run through chapter five. So let's back up and move in a, it's, we're gonna cover a, a lot of ground here, cover a lot of words in Heidegger in, um, and try and get an, a, you know, an overview of the terrain. Okay, Heidegger seeks to reawaken perplexity about the question of being, this huge issue, which has been the defining issue of metaphysics for 3,000 years. And in Being and Time, he pursues this question of being through an analysis of the human being, what he calls Dasein, and this by now is self-evident to us. And the being of Dasein is existence, understood as average, everyday existence of our life in the world. The question in chapter five really is how might we give some more content, more of a kind of a feel to this rather formal idea of existence. Now, in chapter five, the central claim of this chapter, which is only deepened in the remainder of being in time, the thought doesn't change, it's just deepened. So once you've got this structure clear in your mind, then all that Heidi is gonna do in the remainder of the book is kind of burrow down further into that structure. But this is the central claim of the book. That Dasein is thrown projection. Dasein is thrown projection. And in German it sounds even, um, sounds nicer. Dasein ist geworfener Entwurf. Dasein is a thrown, throwing off. Let me try and unravel this thought. Heidegger tends to advance his investigation in being a time in concept clusters. One cluster, the first cluster really presented in chapter five, contains three concepts. Um, and those three concepts are state of mind, mood, and thrownness. State of mind, mood, and thrownness. Now, state of mind, you know, what does that mean in English? It doesn't really suggest anything. It's a rather questionable rendering of the German term Befindlichkeit, right? Um, you can say in German, uh, or you say in German, wie befinden Sie sich? How are you? Which really means, how do you find yourself? How do you find yourself? So this idea of Befindlichkeit is really a question of how does one find oneself? The first English, um, language writer to work on this question to translate these terms was the great father William Richardson, who um, died just a few years ago. I knew him well, he was a lovely, lovely man, um, Jesuit priest and a psychoanalyst. And uh, Richardson, in his huge book on Heidegger from 1961, translates Befindlichkeit as already having found oneself there, Nuss already having found oneself there, nus, which is absolutely accurate, but incredibly ugly. Not a very elegant way of putting it. But Heidegger's thought here is that the human being 
is always already found or disclosed somewhere. It's always disclosed in the there of its being in the world. This there is the there of Dasein, the Da of Dasein. So I'm always already found somewhere, right? How did you find yourself this morning? I just rolled back the sheets and there I was, quoting the words of the great Vivian Stanshaw uh, from the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band a long, long time ago. The idea here is that we're always already found somewhere. And how are we found? This introduces the second concept. We're always found in a mood. And the word here in German is Stimmung, which is mood, but kind of closer to an idea of attunement. And it's also linked to the idea of the tuning of a musical instrument, of a, a mood is a way in which we can be attuned to the world. Anyway, I'm always found in a mood. And this is a mood in the strong Aristotelian sense of pathos, of affection, of passion, the passions of the soul, the passions of the human being. So I'm always found in a mood, in a passion, something that befalls us and in which we find ourselves. Really importantly for Heidegger, the uh, passions are not some psychological coloring for an essentially rational agent. So one way of thinking about passions is that uh, we could think of ourselves as essentially rational beings, uh, organized at our center as a kind of a mind or an intellect, and then kind of gathered around that intellect are the passions that we fall into at different times. Heidegger's not gonna take that view. For him, everything is a passion, everything is a mood, and indeed, reason itself is a kind of passion, a certain kind of mood. So these moods are the fundamental ways in which we are attuned to the world. We're always attuned to the world in terms of a mood. I am, uh, I'm excited, I'm bored, I'm distracted, I'm engaged, I'm sleepy, I'm awake, whatever it might be. There's always a mood which we have. And indeed, musicologically, Stimmung, mood, is linked to tuning and pitch. One is always attuned to the world first and foremost, or as Heidegger will say, proximally and for the most part, most closely and mostly, one is attuned to the world through moods. And one of the compelling aspects of Heidegger's work for someone like me is his attempt to provide a description of moods, a phenomenology of moods, of the affects that make up our everyday life in the world. So rather than denigrating moods or subordinating passions to uh, reason, which is considered to be primary, um, Heidegger gives us this rich description of the life of moods. And um, I find that really interesting. Now, what do those moods disclose? 
For Heidegger, those moods disclose the human being as thrown, thrown into the there of my being in the world. So this is the third concept in this little cluster, state of mind, uh, having always already, always already having found oneself there-ness, mood and thrownness. Uh, so I'm always, so moods disclose me as thrown into the there of my being in the world. As uh, Jim Morrison intoned many decades ago, into this world we're thrown. Thrownness is the simple awareness that we always find ourselves somewhere delivered over to the world with which we are fascinated, a world that we share with others, right? So this is a, a really obvious thought, but kind of interesting thought, isn't it? That uh, we didn't decide to come into being. We didn't kind of um, you know, you know, click our fingers and suddenly wake up into consciousness. No, rather we were always already there, always already existing. And then we find ourselves already, already, already existing when we wake up in the morning. We wake up in the morning, which is kind of, you know, uh, a nice surprise to have. We're factically there um, in a certain mood, a mood of, let's say, sleepiness at that point. And um, so thrownness is also linked to the dimension of the past. Uh, we'll come back to that. Okay, so at the end of um, chapter five, Heidegger writes, for as long as Dasein is, it remains in the throw. For as long as Dasein is, it remains in the throw. Namely, we are always caught up in our everyday life in the world, in the throw or in the throes of various moods, whether that's fear, boredom, excitement, or as we'll see, in uh, episode seven, or anxiety, which um, we'll see is the kind of shadowy queen amongst moods, which we'll talk about. But Heidegger insists we're not just thrown, so we're always in the throw. We can't, uh, we can't throw ourselves off. We're stuck with ourselves. We're, we're riveted to ourselves. We are facts uh, to ourselves. But, he insists, we're not just thrown into the world. Dasein can also throw off that thrownness in a movement that he calls projection. And this introduces the next kind of concept cluster in, um, in chapter five, projection. And I think about projection as an idea of uh, throwing off or throwing forth, rather than kind of, you know, you know, I, I like to think of myself as a person has projects, something like that. Projection is more of a, an, an activity of throwing off or throwing forth, which is always a throwing forth from thrownness. This concept of projection comes up in an important discussion of the concept of understanding. So projection is linked to 
understanding. This is what takes place in paragraph uh, 31 of Being in Time. Now, what does understanding mean? Um, by understanding, Heidegger means understanding how to do something or how to operate something. That's the way he understands understanding. Understanding is being able to do something. The German is etwas können, right? Being able to do something, being capable of something. And um, it's strongly linked to a term which Heidegger uses in his discussion of authentic Dasein uh, in Division Two of Being in Time, which is characterized by the ability or potentiality to be. So understanding, understanding how to do something should be linked to this larger idea of ability, which is gonna be described in deeper ways later in the book as potentiality for being, what he calls sein können. That Dasein, us, we are the kind of beings who, who can, who have capability, who have potentiality as their being. So the thought here is that the human being is not just a being defined by being thrown into the world. It can also throw off that thrownness in a movement of projection. And as we're gonna see later on, this is gonna be a free projection, a projection where it seizes hold of its possibilities, where it acts in a concrete situation. The movement of projection, of potentiality, of ability, is the very experience, the experience of what Heidegger will call freedom. And this is, I think, very important, that freedom for Heidegger is not an abstract philosophical concept. It is an experience. It's the experience of the human being demonstrating its potential, enacting its potential through acting in the world. And to act in this way for Heidegger is to be authentic. So, human existence for Heidegger is defined by throne projection. And that's the key concept in chapter five, the key concept which will deepen in being in time. Throneness is linked to our inauthentic, average, everyday life in the world, and projection is the ability to act freely and to become authentic. So if all you take away from this episode is that idea that Dasein is thrown projection, we are factically, we find ourselves in a world and we can throw forth from that being in the world. If you get that, the rhythm of that thought, that's all you need to take away from this, um, from this episode. But, of course, there's always a but. There is a, um, a third concept which is introduced into uh, chapter five. So, and that, that third concept, the third existential, uh, is what Heidegger calls discourse. 
or language, or I think better, talk. The word here in uh, German is Rede, R-E-D-E, which was a perfectly good English word um, until, at least until the 17th century. For example, you can find Ophelia in Shakespeare's Hamlet. She speaks of hypocrites who wreck not their own reed, wreck not their own reed, and reed there is, uh, is discourse language. And um, indeed, Shakespeare in English is closer to, as it were, the Germanic roots of English than uh, the stuff that we speak now. But that's another story, which I won't go into at this point. So discourse, talk, language. For Heidegger, talk, or the capacity for expression, communication, is the way in which our life in the world becomes intelligible. It's the way in which the structure of our existence as thrown projection becomes articulable. So Heidegger will say two things in these, um, in these uh, chapters, which are in a kind of contradictory relationship. He will describe these three existential concepts, state of mind, understanding, discourse, as in his terms, equi primordial. They are equal one to the other. And that's, that's what he says. But if you think through the logic of what he's saying, then it is language, discourse, which is the condition of possibility for the articulation of us, of Dasein, as throne projection. If there were not language, there would not be us. We are linguistic beings. So Heidegger um, is part of you know, what is rather superficially called the linguistic turn in philosophy, um, Heidegger and the later Wittgenstein. But the, um, the idea here is, um, is rather more straightforward than, than that. Uh, Aristotle famously defined the human being um, as what is the word is translated as rational animal, anima rationale. The Greek there means a, an animal with the capacity for logos, for speech. So Heidegger disagrees with the idea of the human being as a rational animal and says, well, actually, when, what Aristotle is saying that we're the kind of beings that have logos. And Heidegger decides to translate that idea of logos in the following way. He says, the human being shows itself as the being that talks. The human being shows itself as the being that talks. Now, buried in that you know, seemingly kind of straightforward expression is Heidegger's definition of phenomenon. A phenomenon is that which shows itself and his definition of logos as that which lets us see. So language lets us see that which shows itself. That's Heidegger's concept of phenomenology. So language, logos, is the human ability to disclose the world, the capacity to reveal a world that is shared and meaningful. So to go back to the beginning of this chapter, if what defines 
us, Dasein is uh, disclosedness that we can, uh, we clear, we are the clearing of our existence, then what makes that clearing possible is language. And we need to think carefully about what kind of language that is. Um, Heidegger's going to have um, some words to say about this in the middle paragraphs of chapter five, which we'll get to in a second. Because there can be, if you like, um, authentic language, full language, and there can be empty language, um, idle talk, sort of different ways of experiencing language. And Heidegger thinks that our fundamental activity as linguistic beings is not propositional. It is not something that takes place in philosophical propositions. It's something which is closer to the, the primal feeling or meaning of elemental words. So, chapter five. Dasein is thrown projection, right? And thrown projection, which is articulated through discourse, through talk. So the three key concepts in chapter five are state of mind, thrownness, understanding, meaning projection, and language, talk, discourse. But there is a fourth concept introduced in uh, chapter five, which I want to say a word about here. And that fourth concept is falling. And this concept is, uh, can be also thought of as falling as a kind of ensnarement. And this is described at the end of uh, chapter five. So having described the three existentials that constitute the disclosure of Dasein, state of mind, understanding, and discourse, he goes on to describe those characteristics of our everyday being in the world given that we live with the they, with them, most closely and mostly. And um, we'll get into this in more detail next time. But um, these three modes are three modes of, of falling. Now, what does Heidegger mean by falling? Um, he insists that this is not a negative evaluation. In the same way as he insists that inauthenticity is not a value judgment, it's not a negative value judgment, so too falling is not a negative evaluation. It does not mean that we've fallen from a state of grace into a state of sin. Right? And that's very much uh, on Heidegger's mind, that theological, that Christian way of looking at falling is kind of the framework Heidegger's uh, pushing against. Rather, falling describes our usual way of being. Falling is not so much falling into the world, like uh, Satan's descent from heaven to hell after the war in heaven, his descent into the kind of the mud pits of hell in, uh, in Milton's Paradise Lost. It's a different kind of falling. The way I think about this is in the following terms. The way we think about falling is we think about falling as vertical. We fall down from one state to another, from grace to sin. 
Heidegger's idea of falling is that we fall towards the world, we fall at the world, we fall to it, and we're constantly falling towards the world because we're absorbed by the world and we're fascinated by it. So now we're right at the end of the chapter. I'm gonna back up in a second, but I wanna give you um, a taste of where this, where this goes to at the end of the, the chapter. He'll say on page 220, he says, this term falling does not express any negative evaluation, but is used to signify that Dasein, the human being, is proximally and for the most part alongside the world of its concern. It doesn't mean that, it's, um, that it is not. Falling also represents a positive possibility. In falling, our potentiality for being is still an issue, even if that's in the mode of inauthenticity. Dasein can fall because it understands and projects. And authenticity, Heidegger insists, authenticity is not some state that floats above falling everydayness. Authenticity is simply a modified way in which, in which everydayness is seized upon, he says. And the paragraph, uh, sorry, the chapter finishes really with that, with that thought on page um, 224. Let me read you a couple of lines. He says, in falling, nothing other than our potentiality for being in the world is an issue, even if in the mode of inauthenticity. Dasein can fall only because being in the world understandingly with the state of mind is an issue for it. On the other hand, authentic existence is not something which floats above falling everydayness. Existentially, it is only a modified way in which such everydayness is seized upon. Right, so all the authenticity means for Heidegger is a modification of our inauthentic existence, a shift in perspective, a shift which of course does not last forever. We always fall back into everydayness. So I can be having the most authentic day of my life and then uh, at a certain point I'll start binge watching Netflix and fall asleep and I slide back into inauthenticity to awake the next morning, finding myself there and then I think about what to do. Now, so that is the story in chapter five. That is really what I want to communicate in this episode. There's a couple more words I'd like to, uh, to say. I think on about fear and about um, interpretation. That sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? But in paragraph 30 of Being in Time, in chapter five, there's this little discussion of fear, which is often ignored. Uh, it's very interesting. And he talks about fear in relationship to um, Aristotle's rhetoric. It's a very important text for Heidegger. 
because in the rhetoric, Aristotle discusses emotions. Why, we might ask, does Aristotle discuss emotions in the rhetoric? Because rhetoric is that activity of speech, of language, which is meant to be persuasive, which is meant to arouse emotions in the hearer. So rhetoric and emotion are tightly linked. Heidegger describes the rhetoric of Aristotle, it's a lovely phrase, as the first systematic hermeneutic of the everydayness of being with one another. The first systematic hermeneutic of the everydayness of being with one another. And then he goes into discussion of fear, and in many ways what he's doing here, Heidegger, he's got his copy of Aristotle open and he's just copying down notes, really. Um, because for Aristotle, fear is fear of something happening. Fear is fear of something threatening, something possibly destructive. And it's opposed to confidence. And Heidegger just borrows this, echoes this. Fear discloses us, Dasein, in its there as fearfully concerned with itself. So fear is a state of mind which is concerned with something threatening, with something threatening me in the world. And uh, I think about, if you want an example of this, I, I'm, not ba I'm bad at examples, therefore just choose absurd ones. Um, think about, you know, if there was a giant bear in the studio now, huge giant bear appears at the window, eight feet tall, clawing away its mouth, dripping with foam. Um, I would feel threatened by that bear, right? <laughs> it might come in and kill me. Um, so fear, I'd be scared of that bear. Uh, that would be a good response. So fear is always fear of something, something threatening. In this case, a giant bear. Why is that important? Why is that a thing? Well, when we get a little bit further on in Being in Time, when we get to chapter six, Heidegger will make a distinction between fear and anxiety. Uh, fear is fear of something, of some particular thing, a giant bear. So fear is determinate. Anxiety is anxiety in the face of nothing in particular, which is why Heidegger will say mysteriously in a lecture from 1929 called What is Metaphysics? He says, anxiety reveals the nothing. So fear is always fear of something in particular. Anxiety is anxiety in the face of nothing. Now there's a lot more that we could say about uh, fear and it has a very passing place in Heidegger's analysis, but it's also a way in which um, uh, we could think about Heidegger's relationship to, to others. Um, the usual way of thinking about Heidegger is he's, he's a rather uh, ultimately solipsistic thinker uh, who turns his back on the average everyday character of existence and uh, authenticity is a kind of solipsistic rising up of the self in the face of uh, the world of them. Um, and that's a horribly distorted picture. And this discussion of fear is also a place in which you know, fear can be fear of something threatening, but fear is also fear about others, and I can fear for others. 
I can be afraid myself, but I can be, I can be fearful that the other might do something reckless with regard to what threatens him or her. So there can be a kind of um, co-state of mind, he says. He calls it a mitbefindlichkeit, a co-state of mind with the other, which takes place through fear. So this is one place in being in time where others kind of um, light up. There is a kind of relational dimension to what Heidegger is describing here. I think about this in relationship to say, I don't know, uh, I used to fear for my mother. I feared for her, right? I had a co-state of mind fearing for her. I feared that um, things would go badly for her. Of course, in fearing for my mother, I'm also fearing for myself. I mean, I don't want, I didn't want to, to lose my mother. But also you are um, involved in fear in a, a relation to another person. And so that's um, a dimension of Heidegger that isn't usually brought to light. The last thing I want to say is about interpretation. And I'll pick this up uh, next time. But let me just kind of uh, say a couple of words here in closing. Um, what I'm thinking about now is paragraph 32, which is called Understanding and Interpretation. What Heidegger's trying to bring out here is something terribly, terribly simple, but very diff difficult to get a grip on. We have an understanding of the world. The world is that bunch of stuff what he calls technically that referential totality of involvements which are significant to us. The world is that thing which hangs together and which is meaningful. We use things, we have a concern for things. We take things as things. So when I'm in the world, moving around the world, I take the coffee cup as a coffee cup. I take the table that I'm resting my notes on as a table, the door, as a door. The things that surround us and which make up the stuff of the world are things that we understand and the understanding is articulated when we take something as something. And this taking of something as something is what Heidegger calls interpretation. Interpretation. And um, I think that becomes clearer if you think about interpretation in the um, in relation to the German term that Heidegger uses, which is Auslegung. Auslegung, as the word it sounds like when you say the word, is laying out, the laying out of understanding. So interpretation for Heidegger is the, the laying out of our understanding of being in the world. He says at the beginning of paragraph 32, in interpretation, understanding does not become something different, it becomes itself. In interpretation, the things that we take as things become things that we understand. Right? And this is a little bit like the um, discussion of signs uh, a few episodes back. The signs, if there's an exit sign over the door, I'm aware of that sign as a ready to hand piece of equipment, a piece of stuff in my world, which is um, which I can I can see as a sign, but I'm not aware of that in a present at hand way. I'm aware of that as a sign which functions in a world, which allows me to orientate in my world, 
Uh, but I'm aware of that, as Heidegger will say, more, more um, technically, pre-propositionally. I take something as something, I lay that out, and that's interpretation. Now, what Heidegger's doing in these pages of paragraph 32, incidentally, is inventing a whole new field of philosophy that is called hermeneutics. Um, this tradition of hermeneutics was developed decisively by Heidegger's student, Hans-Georg Gadamer, in his um, hugely important book, Truth and Method. Um, but the core concepts are all in Heidegger, and that's, uh, that's fine. Interpretation, uh, this is what Gadamer picks up. Interpretation, Heidegger says, is grounded in a threefold structure of forehaving, foresight, and foreconception. Forehaving, foresight, and foreconception. That is, we have the thing in advance of the interpretation that lays out that having. Right? We have the thing in advance of the interpretation. We always already are in the world understanding it. Interpretation just lays that out. But we already have a grasp on things. And this, um, this leads, and I find this um, really suggestive. This is what I want to finish with today. This leads Heidegger to a discussion of meaning. Meaning. And he says in his uh, terminology, meaning is that upon which something becomes intelligible as something. But that sounds a bit too fancy. The thought that he's trying to develop is that meaning is not some um, property that is independent of us. Uh, meaning is not something we can perhaps find or lose, rather meaning is an existential of Dasein. Meaning is something that we do. We, we make meaning or we are meaning. The world is significant to us. Meaning is that which gets articulated in an act of interpretive understanding. Dasein is meaningful. Only Dasein can be meaningful. If there were no Dasein, there would be no meaning. And where Dasein ceases to be, meaning ceases to be. Death. <laughs> Death is the, the non-meaningful limit to life's meaning uh, on a Heideggerian view. But let's think a little bit more about this idea of meaning. Because on one uh, nine three. he makes a very interesting remark. He says, if we are inquiring about the meaning of being, listen to that, if we are inquiring about the meaning of being, our investigation does not then become a deep one, nor does it puzzle out what stands behind being. It asks about being itself insofar as being enters into the intelligibility of Dasein. The meaning of being can never be contrasted with entities or with being as the ground which gives entities support. 
What he's saying here is that meaning is not deep. Meaning is not deep. It sounds deep. It sounds, when we're talking about the meaning of being, this sounds deep. But to construe it as deep is to misconstrue it metaphysically. It sounds as if we're looking for something which lies behind our life in the world, some, some ground, some god or something. No, Heidegger says, being is superficial. It is phenomenal. It is something which happens on the surface of things. And I think this is hugely important, and it takes us back to that poem I, I quoted two episodes back from Fernando Pessoa, when um, Pessoa um, talks about seeing things, and what we see of things are things. What we see of things are things. Um, why would we uh, see something and then think about something else? Or why would we think that that which we see is not real? That would require, uh, Pessoa says, a sickness of the mind, a kind of illness. Uh, and philosophy is a kind of illness a lot of the time. Heidegger's point is that uh, we have to be concerned with that which is, with being, insofar as it's intelligible to us, and it lies on the surface of things. Another way of putting this, um, uh, maybe, you'll, maybe you'll like this, is that many readers of Heidegger see being as some kind of rabbit in a hat, right? They see it as some kind of rabbit in a hat that you can kind of pull out as a magic trick. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody else, there is no rabbit. The point is learning to see the hat without wanting the rabbit. If you can see the hat without wanting the rabbit, then you're learning to think in a Heideggerian way. And that's the purpose of these episodes. So we'll pick it up next time with a discussion of um, language. I'll go over a couple of things with this idea of language and stretch it out a little bit further. And then we will plunge, we'll plunge headlong into inauthentic life and look at the concepts of curiosity, ambiguity, and idle talk. But that's for next time. Thank you very much.